Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 593, January 25th, 2011. It is a Tuesday, and even though it's a Tuesday, we're going to do a Monday show. That's where I answer your questions, your comments, your feedback. You want something to be included on a show like this, you email it to me. You send that email to jack at survivalpodcast.com. In the subject line, you put question for Jack. You don't put anything else other than that. Even if it's an article link, it's still question for Jack. That gets you into the screening room, we'll call it, where uh, we comb through these emails every day and see which ones we can get on the show. We get about a 100 of them a day. I do about 10 to 15 on a show like this. I do a show like this once a week. That means we can't do them all. If you've done this, let's say, three weeks ago or older, you haven't heard your stuff on the air yet, you'd like to resubmit it, now would be the time to resubmit. Before we get into your questions, comments, feedback, articles, commentary, etc., let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Great website. Lots of instructional videos there on cooking with healthy ingredients from your backyard or your local farmer's market. And making sure that you're using the right kind of food to avoid things like Monsantoized Frankenfoods. And being able to cook with all that great stuff we talk about here. Maybe some of the unusual things that you've grown in the garden because you've heard me talk about and you're thinking, now what do I do with this? Chef Keith will show you what to do with it. So check out his website, check out his membership program, and definitely consider adding a copy of his, of his book called The Harvest Eating Cookbook to your library. I know there's one in mind that's available from his website, harvesteating.com, or you can also find it at amazon.com. Next up today, Save Castle Royal. Vic over there is a great supporter of the show. Been with us over two years, just committed to another year. And guess what, folks, man? Save Castle's got everything you could possibly need for your preps. From long-term storage food items and everything else you can think of, you can find what you're looking for at Safe Castle. Safe Castle is also a builder of some of the best hardened shelters in the world, man. You want to check out their sister site for their shelters. And uh, last but not least with those guys, man, they have a discount program, $29 bucks a, uh, one time, and you get discounts on everything they sell for the rest of your life. But if you're part of our member support brigade, they give you that membership for free. So they're definitely a strong supporter of the show. So consider supporting them when you make purchases for your prepping needs. Great service, great prices, and great support from SafeCastle. Uh, next up today, consider connecting with us. We are available on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Got some new YouTube videos coming. Got a lot of stuff I wanted to do in the past couple weeks, and my voice has just been shot. Uh, I've got some stuff on some on some stuff from uh, Thrive Food Products from Shelf Reliance. I've got to do a review of the Berkey system. I've got a lot of stuff coming up for YouTube. Uh, there's a seed bank that Jeff over at the Berkey guy is selling now as well. He sent me one of those. I'll be talking about that on YouTube. So definitely connect with us on YouTube. I'm on Facebook and Twitter usually a couple times a day. So connect with us there. There's links at the website, of course, for all of that. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts. You get over $100 worth of free ebooks. It's a great deal. And you're supporting the show. And you're supporting the show at what? It's about, I say 20 cents an episode. It really comes out to, if you do the math, 18 cents an episode. So when you get done listening to the show, if you think, man, this guy pours it out for us and it's worth, you know, 20 cents a day. 
consider joining the support brigade, and you get a great return of investment as well. All right, with that, we'll go ahead and start taking your questions and stuff. Uh, I got one for you at first. I'm actually going to play it for you. It's a YouTube video, and if I explain it, I won't do near as good a job as the guys that put the video together. Uh, if you want to watch the video, which will give you some additional information because they'll draw some things on some whiteboards and stuff like that, there will be a link to it in today's show notes. This is one you're going to want to pass around. But I just want to put it to you this way. If you notice that there's a lot of sh you know short sales and foreclosures going on and you know there's nearly not a lot of that loan modification they talked about during the bailouts going on, you might wonder why that is. Wouldn't it be better just to keep the person in the house, modify their loan rather than do a short sale and have them take a little piece of the debt and take a loss? I mean, how can these banks make money by foreclosing? How is it better for them to foreclose than to, uh, than to, to, to modify the loan? Well, you're about to hear how. Um, hope you haven't had anything rough for breakfast because this one might make you a little sick when you realize what's going on and how this really works out. So here you go from YouTube, and I'll be back with you at the end of the video to talk about it a little bit more. Good morning, and this is your TBWS Daily for February 8, 2010. You know, does the government really want to clean up this mess? Consider this. Like many other banks, IndyMac closed its doors and was seized by the FDIC in July 2008. The assets of IndyMac Bank were sold to One West Bank by the FDIC in March 2009. Well, guess who owns One West Bank? That would be Goldman Sachs VP Stephen Munchen and big-time Sachs investors and billionaires George Soros and John Paulson. John Paulson of no blood relation to ex-Goldman Sachs CEO Hank Paulson. He would be the ex-secretary of the Treasury. All current residential mortgages were purchased at 70% of the par value. All HELOCs were purchased at 58% of the value. But just to make sure the One West guys are feeling all cozy and warm, the FDIC decided to step up and cover between 80 and 95% of the losses they might incur from any of those naughty IndyMac mortgage homeowners. So you're probably asking yourself why we think that you should know this. Well, in the event of a short sale or foreclosure, the loss is calculated using the original loan balance and not the amount One West Bank paid for the loan. I feel the plot thickening here a little bit, don't you? Here's an actual example from a client of one of our TBWS viewers. Now, make sure to listen closely because this is going to get your blood boiling. Take an actual loan amount of $478,000 plus six months of missed payments for a grand total of $485,200. One West Bank paid $334,600 for that loan. Okay, now the underwater homeowner has an all-cash offer that nets $241,000 to One West Bank. Stick with us now. Well, according to the FDIC formula, you take the original loan amount minus the amount of the offer, and that leaves you with $244,200. Next, according to the sweetheart deal, the FDIC writes a check to One West Bank for 80% of the net loss. So in this case, One West Bank gets a check from the taxpayer, courtesy of the FDIC, for $195,360. Okay, so now add the $195,360 from the government to the $241,000 cash offer and One West Bank just made... 
$436,360 on a loan that they bought for only $334,600. And all they had to do is sell it for whatever they wanted to. Guys, they can't lose money on this deal. Think about it. So One West Bank just profited from the short sale to the tune of $101,760. All thanks to the insane arrangement that they have with the FDIC. Hey, whoever said it's good to have friends in high places wasn't kidding around. So the next time you ask yourself, why is it so hard to get a loan modification? The answer is because there's too much money to be made with short sales and foreclosures. Now, are you ready for an encore? Now remember, even though One West Bank profited by over $100,000, the house was still sold for less than the full loan amount. In this actual scenario, the borrower was forced to sign a promissory note for $75,000 with One West Bank. So who really pays in the end? Well, we'll just let you decide. Oh, and by the way, the FDIC just announced that it needs to start borrowing money from the Treasury. The Treasury being the place where all those Goldman Sachs guys called home before they called One West Bank home. If you're as mad about this as me and Frank are, share this video with everyone you know. Help us reveal where the real problems lie in the industry that we all care so deeply about. Well, to uh, dust off a 80s cliché that comes from a TV show called Saturday Night Live, isn't that special? And... Uh, First person emails me today and tells me who said, isn't that special, gets a free MSB. Uh, if you're listening to the show more than maybe an hour after it was first published live, don't bother. I guarantee you that somebody's going to jump on that one quick. Uh, but, yeah, isn't that special? You and I get to pay for uh, all these bigwigs who went in and bought the distressed mortgages to, uh, to, uh, to get additional profits and make sure they can't lose. See, I, I talked about this when it was first going on. I said, look, this is a plan collapse. And what it's going to do is the big banks are going to go in and eat up the little banks and buy out their stuff for pennies on the dollar, and uh, they're going to make a fortune. I didn't know how much money they were going to make. I didn't know we were going to do it this way. This one's new on me. I'm not going to say too much about it because I think the video does a good enough job for itself of explaining the situation. I will put a link to the full video uh, so you can check it out online. And uh, I think you should do that because I think when you watch the numbers and you watch them explain it, it'll make more sense. But the one thing I wanted to comment on was something I think people don't understand about a short sale. You hear what the end happened. The person that had to lose the house, that walked away from it and did it honorably and did everything they were supposed to, they're still carrying debt of $75,000 on the house. They still owe the money even though somebody else lives there. They had to sign a promissory note. So the bank has another $75,000 due to them. And trust me, folks, that doesn't come free. That comes from with interest. So they walked away with enough in debt to go out and probably buy a little kind of rinky-dink home at seventy five grand. And the bank, of course, will probably sell their promissory note to another bank and play the shenanigans with that. But I do want to explain just one thing. How does this cost us? Because if you look at it, the person paying the writing the check... To Paulson and his buddies, just like Soros, right? Um, and and when he said no relation to, to, to Hank Paulson, he wasn't being facetious. The guy really is not related to Hank Paulson. Uh, they just share the same name. Um, 
the FDIC writes a check. Well, where's the FDIC get its money? Well, the FDIC gets its money from the banks. The banks basically self-insure. All the banks pay in, and in that way, if one bank fails, the, the FDIC is there to use that money to cover the depositor. It's supposed to protect us. That's what it's supposed to do. Instead, it's protecting the bank here. Of course, the FDIC wasn't designed to bail out banks who bought mortgages at a discount. It was designed to protect you up to, you know, a certain amount of money. It was $100,000, now they've raised it. But it's designed to protect your bank account. But here it's protecting the banker themselves. And since it's not designed to do that, since so many banks have failed, since so many deals have been made like this, the FDIC is running out of money. So when they run out of money, they say, well, we got to pay our bills. We're technically kind of part of the government. We can't not pay our bills. So they go over to their buddies at the Treasury and go, hey, can we have some money, please? The guys at the Treasury say, well, you're the FDIC. Of course, we'll loan you money. You'll have to pay it back. And they say, well, that's fine. We can pay it back. But what's they get some sweetheart deal? Well, all of this seems like so far, how's it cost us money? Well, it costs us money because the Treasury can only get its money from one place. Actually, two. It can borrow it from anybody from a foreign government to a bank uh, to a little old lady that wants to buy a bond but of course that comes at interest so they borrow it at the expense of the American people or the other way the treasury gets money is through taxation of the American people so they're taking our money and loaning it to the FDIC to bail out people like George Soros who already had a profitable buy by buying the mortgages at a discount that should probably get your blood boiling today, folks. Uh, before we go on, to, before we go on out too much and get too angry, I want to share a little bit of lightheartedness that came to me from a person. Oh, by the way, Brandon is the one that sent me the link to that video. Thanks, Brandon, for that. Going on to the next question, next email here. More, like I said, something humorous to lighten the mood after that. Because boy, that just, I had to just hold back to not go on a tear there, honestly. But Daryl, Daryl made me laugh with this one. Uh, just part of his email, because it was part of it was personal. It says, uh, "Well, I have your attention. I'm still trying to catch up the previous episodes and heard one regarding the evils of Monsanto, where you mentioned some people think carrots naturally come in a plastic bag. This reminded me of one of my in-town neighbors when I told her about having chickens in my backyard. She asked me with a mix of shock and horror on her face, "You eat the eggs that come right out of their butts?" Um. Seriously, where does this lady believe her eggs come from? Do her eggs come from an egg tree? Do they come from magical chicken fairyland? Folks, all I can say is, really? What? How in the heck does this lady think her eggs get into those cards? Where does she think they come from? Do they come from a jelly bean field that also grows eggs? I mean, doesn't she understand that Chicken butts are where all eggs, you know, find their genesis. This, I, and here's the thing: it's funny, it's funny, but it's it's also sad and it's also scary, folks. I always tell you in a disaster that the disaster itself is minor in comparison to the long-term uh, consequences of the aftermath, and it's the people in the aftermath who are totally unprepared that will be the greatest danger, and the ones that will get scared and freak out and start doing really stupid things. This lady apparently doesn't even understand the genesis of an egg. And the old cliche, what came first, the chicken or the egg, she's horrified that the chicken lays the egg out of its butt before it's scrambled up with your bacon and your pancakes. 
These are the people we have to worry about. It's not just the fashionistas in Manhattan, folks. This is, uh, it's sad for America that somebody would even make a statement like that. And I just want you to, one, get some comedy out of it. There is some comedy there. But two, let it sink in and make sure you teach your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews. Carrots don't show up in plastic bags. And yes, eggs do come from chickens' butts. But that doesn't mean that they're not good eggs to eat. In fact, I wouldn't want my egg to come from anywhere else. Please explain to me where else we might get an egg, Monsanto, other than the butt of a chicken. Let's go ahead and take the next uh, email. Well, let's go back to being angry at financial institutions after that one, because we have plenty to be angry about. Today's an educational show. We're learning things today that have been sent to me by listeners that I didn't know. Um, this one comes to me from a, a person named Shannon. I don't give last names unless I'm told to. And uh, it says, question for Jack. And then it says, well, not really. More like, holy crap, look at this for Jack. The more Americans that go on food stamps, the more money J.P. Morgan makes. Uh I've said in the past, just like I said with the last story about the banks, that when we have an economic collapse, the banks actually end up doing very well. Big fish eat little fish, etc. And uh, they make money on the up and the down. Here's a new one on me, though. The more food stamps we give out, the more money J.P. Morgan, the, one of the largest banks in the world, makes. Yeah, it's true. Let me read this article for you. It's on the Economic Collapse blog. And uh, here's what it says. Is J.P. Morgan is the largest processor of food stamps benefits in the United States. J.P. Morgan has contract to provide food stamp debit cards in 26 U.S. states and the District of Columbia. J.P. Morgan is paid for each case that it handles, so that means that the more Americans that go on food stamps, the more profits J.P. Morgan makes. Yes, you read that correctly. When the number of Americans on food stamps goes up, J.P. Morgan makes more money. In the video posted below, J.P. Morgan executive Christopher Payton admits that this is a, quote, very important business to J.P. Morgan, unquote, and that it, that it is doing very well. Well, considering the fact that the number of Americans on food stamps has exploded from 26 million in 2007 to 43 million today, one can only imagine how much J.P. Morgan's profits in this area have soared. But doesn't that give J, just give J.P. Morgan incentive to keep the number of Americans rolled into the food stamps program as high as possible? There are just some things that are a little too creepy to be outsourced to private corporations. The J.P. Morgan executive in the interview below does his best to put a positive spin on all of this, but it just seems really unsavory for a big Wall Street bank to be making so much money off the suffering of tens of millions of Americans. So if unemployment goes down, will this ruin J.P. Morgan's food stamp business? Well, apparently not. In the interview, Peyton says that 40% of food stamp recipients are currently working. And he seems convinced that this could be further growth in that segment. So is this what America's turning into? A place where tens of millions of unemployed and the working poor crawl over to Walmart and the dollar store just, to, just there every month just to use food stamp debit cards provided to them by J.P. Morgan. It turns out that J.P. Morgan also provides child support debit cards in 15 U.S. states, and they also provide unemployment insurance benefit debit cards in seven states. Apparently the states found uh, that they could save millions of dollars by outsourcing the provision of these benefits 
financial firms like J.P. Morgan's. So what happens if you have a problem with your food stamp debit card? Well, you can call up J.P. Morgan Service Center. When you do this, there's a very good chance you're going to be helped by a J.P. Morgan call center employee in India. That's right. It turns out J.P. Morgan is saving money by outsourcing food stamp service customer calls to India. When ABC asked J.P. Morgan executive about this, company would not tell ABC News which states have customer service calls sent to India, which states have them inside the United States. J.P. Morgan is, is the only one today still operating public assistance call centers overseas. The company refused to say which states had calls routed to India and which ones had calls stayed domestically. That decision, the company said, was often left up to the individual states. J.P. Morgan has been moving some of these call center jobs back inside the United States due to political pressure, I guess so, but the whole situation is really a good example of what the global economy is doing to middle-class Americans. Just try to imagine the irony. A former middle-class American that has lost a job to outsourcing calls up to get help with a food stamp benefit only to be answered by a call center employee in India. I would like to help you with your food stamp, sir. Yes, that's wonderful, isn't it? Um... You can read the rest of the article if you want to and comment on it at the Economic Collapse blog. You can also watch the video there where uh, this J.P. Morgan executive tells the American people how great it is that J.P. Morgan's making money off food stamps. You know what really bothers me more than J.P. Morgan making money off food stamps? Let me read one line to you again. Considering the fact that the number of Americans on food stamps has exploded... 26 million in 2007, 43 million today. One can only imagine how much J.P. Morgan's profits in the area have soared. See, the one that bothers me is 26 million to 43 million. 43 million Americans food stamps today. With about 300 million people in the United States, if you do a little math, that comes out to 14%. 14%. of the wealthiest most prosperous, most innovative, most history-making nation on the planet are currently living on the government dole to feed themselves. Why do I talk about gardening? What happens when all the money runs out? What happens when the states start to declare bankruptcy? You know that's coming. I'm going to talk about that more in a bit. And the cities start to declare bankruptcy and the federal government can't make good on its payments. What happens then to these people that are living on food stamps? They're used to taking a card over to Walmart to get food that was packaged in China and shipped over here in a metal container where they can make so much money sending us crap they can't, they don't even want to bother to have the container shipped back to China. And they have their calls routed when they have a problem to India so that a person in India can help them figure out how to use food stamp that was provided by the rest of us who are still working. But it's not just the rest of us are still working because a lot of the people that are on the food stamps have a job. And you say, oh, these modern survivalists are crazy, right? You say, oh, these people like Jack Spirico saying, hey, times are tough and they could get worse. You better be prepared. They're nuts. I mean, this is out of the twilight zone. It really is. I'm not going to get all mad, scream and yell about it like I do sometimes. I'm not going to go on a terrible rant. But I want you to think about this. 14% of America's on food stamps. 
And a bunch of them are working their ass off just like you. You, if you don't do this, if you're out there working and you're paying your taxes and all, you're probably angry at a lot of them. You understand that a lot of these people, probably half of them now, are out there slaving away at a job that probably sucks a lot worse than yours for a hell of a lot less money than you make? I'm not saying they shouldn't try to do better and get off the food stamps, but I'm saying that's the reality. And let me explain something to you about something like a food stamp. No matter how much integrity the person has starts drawing it, after a certain amount of time they start to see it as something that they're due, their possession. My own sister who was on WIC when her child got to a certain age and she couldn't get it anymore said, they're taking away my WIC, which stands for Women, Infants, and Children. I said, no, they're not taking away your wick. They're no longer providing it because you no longer qualify for a gift from people like me that have been providing it to you for about seven years now. She didn't see it that way, and I understand why. It's human nature. You came to my door every day, knocked on the door, and said, hey, Jack, how you doing? I was just walking through the neighborhood want to say hello. And the first time you did it, I said, hold on, and I went and got you a bottle of homebrew, and I handed you a bottle of homebrew. You'd think, well, that was really nice. Well, if he came back by the next day and I said, wait, hold on, and I went to the refrigerator and got you another bottle of homebrew and handed it to you, you'd kind of show up on the next day thinking, I'm getting me some homebrew. Jack's a nice guy. I'm going to make sure I say hello to him every day. Well, after about a week, if I just said, hey, how you doing, didn't give you a bottle of homebrew, you might be like, oh, I guess I ain't getting one anymore. But you wouldn't think, oh, this guy owes me homebrew. But if I did that for you for three, four, or five years, every day consistently, just went out and got my bottle of homebrew, brought it over to you, and handed it to you. By the way, don't show up because I will not be giving you a bottle of homebrew like that on a daily basis. But if I did, after enough time, most people will eventually become conditioned to the point where they'll say, Hey, where the hell's my homebrew, Jack? You're supposed to give me one of those every day. We have an arrangement here. That's what happens with things like food stamps. And the government wants to put people on food stamps because it puts the money through the government system and apparently it puts it through the banking system as well. This is a movement toward socialism beyond the way it's normally seen. It's not just about benefits to the needy or equalizing things anymore. It's going to get to a point where what they want to do is have you taxed higher but give you more of your own money back. So as long as they can push the money through, Whenever money flows in our society, money grows and multiplies. That's what it's all about. It's about knowing who you are, what you're doing, tracking what you're doing, and beyond that, enriching the coffers of government and state. This is fascism at its finest, folks. Let's go ahead and take another one of these uh, emails today. This next one comes from Raymond, and Raymond has, uh, it just says, states printing money. Gives me a link. And that first link takes me to a bill that's currently uh, in the 2011 session of the Virginia State House. And I'm going to read to you what, just what it says at the very top of it. House Joint Resolution Number 557, offered January 12th, uh, 2011, pre-filled January 5th, 2011. And this is the summary. Establishing a joint subcommittee to study whether the Commonwealth should adopt a currency to serve as an alternative to the currency distributed by the Federal Reserve System in the event of a major breakdown of the Federal Reserve System. And then it has the whereas, whereas, whereas type of thing that you always see in a resolution like this. But basically, this is the state of Virginia going, should we create some Virginia dollars? 
Before I say more on this, uh, there's also another link to Living History School's channel. Uh, I did a commentary in response to one of his videos recently where I slightly disagreed with him, but I think he's got a great channel. And he's got about a minute of commentary on this very subject right here. So I'm going to go ahead and bring him in and let him give his commentary straight off YouTube. The states of Virginia, Georgia, Indiana, Montana, New Hampshire, and South Carolina prepared to print their own money. Um, January 12th, 2011. Um, several states within the Union have um, set up plans to basically start to uh, print their own money in the event that the uh, Federal Reserve System uh, collapses. Basically, when your dollar becomes worthless, um, they want to have a plan in place that can replace the dollar. And as um, under the Constitution and um, several uh, Supreme Court rulings um, since then, says that the states have the right to uh, um, print their own money and to, in the event of um, uh, a collapse of the, uh, the federal uh, the federal system, I guess. Um, so, if you want to uh, learn more about this, uh, you can go online and research House Joint Resolution Number Five Five Seven. Um, that was just offered a few days ago to the uh, uh, Virginia um, state government. And you can read about that. And then you can also research the other um, states that are still going through the same process um, to have something in place when when the shit hits the fan or whatever. There becomes hyperinflation, uh, a serious depression, or some other economic calamity. So that's what's in the works out there. Um, another piece of history uh, kind of repeating itself. As you see before you, that's this note, um, this Confederate note from the Civil War. Um, you know, states uh, states printed their own money, state, uh, states' rights. So, so it is a state right and uh, an interesting part of history um, to be continued, I guess, and repeated possibly. I know there's some of you out there right now saying, I think this is a hell of a good idea. I think if we had the states doing this, maybe the states could fix everything. Well, a little bit later, and we're going to go away from the subject for a while, and we're going to come back to We're going to talk a lot about currency today because that's the kind of stuff that came in. We're going to hear some things dovetailing together that I've talked about in the past and see why this might not quite work out the way we had it planned, or at least the way Virginia has it planned, especially Virginia. Montana might be able to pull this off uh, because they have a small population and they're not in debt, and uh, they have a mentality out there that might make this work. But Virginia, please, uh, Virginia's near bankruptcy. We'll talk about that in a bit. But let's talk about the constitutional basis for this. If the government defaults, the federal government defaults, there's probably, from what this guy just told us, some um, precedent that would allow for the states to create their own currency in some other type of form. But I don't see it as constitutional. I see it maybe as... Uh, is just legal precedent based on what's happened in the past and some judgments that were handed down. I don't know about that, so I'm not going to comment too much on it. But let me tell you how the states could pull it off today. Constitutionally, there's no reason a state couldn't issue a gold and silver-backed currency. Because a lot of people point to a part in the Constitution that says the state shall make nothing other than gold or silver um, for the payment of debts, bills, etc. Things I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but basically the states are limited to using gold and silver. Well, that's not the federal government. See, the federal government, before that, the Congress is given the authority to coin money. 
And that can be loosely interpreted to mean to make money. And it doesn't really say the way they have to do it. And I know there's a lot of people that believe constitutionally we can only have a gold and silverback currency, but we have hundreds of years of precedent of that not happening to go on that make that really a tough case to win. But the states have always been told you can't have you know, South Carolina dollars or Florida dollars or things like that because we're one nation with a common currency. And I think there's some wisdom there, and there's, but there's some mistakes there as well. Because the Constitution does give the authority to the states to use gold and silver. So what a state like Virginia or Montana or Texas or any other state out there could do preemptively to make this work is sell currency into circulation, very similar to the way that AOCS does it, but with the state's backing. Uh, giving employees the option, since they are allowed to pay debts with it, right? So an employee that works for the state of Virginia or the city of, of you know, uh, Wheeling, West Virginia or Helena, Montana or any state that wanted to do this could elect to receive payment in gold and silver backed or gold and silver hard currency. And they could basically sell the currency into circulation preemptively. So that they would have their own state-backed currency backed by gold and silver and float it against the United States dollar. And constitutionally, I can't see where they're not, you know, they don't have the authority to do that right now. Collapse or not. That's the only way I could see it work. And I'm going to hold off on saying any more about this for a bit. We're going to take going to some different subjects. But this is going to come right back to us with two other submissions uh, by people in the last week. They're going to show you the flaw with the concept from the get-go before it gets off the drawing board. Let's go to something totally different here for a minute before we get too bogged down uh, in finance and misery. And as I've promised, it is totally different than what we've been talking about. It comes from Clinton. Clinton says, Jack, I'm listening to episode 389. You talked about improving your toad-slash-frog habitat. One thing you mentioned was to install a pond. I'm wondering how to keep mosquitoes from maximizing the new habitat. I read a few articles about different kinds of fish to put in a pond and mentioned chemical options that may hurt frogs. What are your thoughts? How big does the pond need to be to facilitate frogs? Would the bottom half of a plastic barrel sunk in the ground be enough? Guppies were recommended, but I have a hard time believing these guys would be able to survive thrown together in a backyard mini pond. Chemicals don't seem like a good idea either. Well, first of all, the mosquito dunks that are basically BT-based are, uh, are very successful, very usable, and, and very uh, they don't really hurt anything other than mosquitoes, uh, especially used as recommended. So you could use those. Uh, to keep mosquitoes down, even a small pond would probably support for you if you went out to like you find like a park around you or something like that through the summer where the mosquitoes are breeding and catch just some of your local minnows. A lot of those guys are really hardy and would be able to survive even in a pump without um, filtration and a you know a, or a pond without a pump and filtration. Another thing you can do to improve the habitat in your little even little pond, even a little barrel sized pond is to put in some plants in there that are oxygenators. And those are your plants that are more likely to stay under the water, uh, like coontail and things like that, and uh, some of the ferns and, and frond plants. Uh, they'll also act as natural filtration. One of the things you can do to keep a little pond, a little still pond, I'm talking 40, 50-gallon pond. Dig a hole, put a little liner in somewhere out in your property, rock it in, no electricity, no nothing, barley straw. Barley straw is a very uh, good effect. Now, now this won't help with your mosquitoes, but it'll help keep your algal growth down 
one, just from its natural reaction, but two, if you float it on the pond, you basically block light, and that helps keep your algal growth down. Of course, that would hurt any plant that's beneath the surface, so that is a kind of a balance, one or the other. But you know, if one doesn't work, you can try the other, and a barley straw float will definitely uh, work, but then your oxygen levels aren't going to be there. So you're going to need your, your mosquito dunks. So we can do fish and oxygenating plants, Very, very small fish. And these fish are not going to winter over. They're not going to make it when that little pond freezes or gets too cold. But you don't care then because the daggone mosquitoes aren't going to breed when the water's frozen and it's too cold for them to be out. That's why, folks, this is a totally side note, but those of you who have your dogs on heartworm medication, um, the time of the year when there's no mosquitoes, there's no reason for your dog to be on heartworm medication. Many vets will take exception to that, but if you talk to, you know, find a, an enlightened vet, they're probably more than happy to run a schedule with you and save at least three months of year of uh, heartworm prevention cost. And the fact that that is a toxin going into the dog's body, it's kind of a necessary one if you want to prevent heartworms. But why give it to them in months they don't need it? So it's the same principle here with small ponds. So those are some things that you can do. But uh, you don't need to go worrying about all kinds of different chemicals. The little mosquito dunks sold at places like Tractor Supply and all kinds of pond stores, uh, that's very, very effective and very environmentally friendly. Uh, but the little fish will work as well. And like I said, I think the best uh, recommendation I can make is go find a ditch that has minnows. Go find a little farm pond that has minnows. Find local indigenous fishes And, you know, a couple dozen of them in there uh, will do a lot to control your mosquito population. Uh, and you can maybe do some barley straw, just a little bit, instead of a complete float block out. Do your oxygenating plants. Uh, if you do a little bit bigger upon, say, 50 to 75 gallons, maybe even put some, uh, some miniature cattail at one side of it. And why are we talking about this as part of the Survival Podcast? Well, if you're going to grow a garden and you're going to grow food in your backyard, the more predator habitat you put in, the better you can you can do that. And even a tiny little pond, you know, 40 gallons or less, can create hundreds and hundreds of frogs and toads. Uh, those little guys will come in there and they'll eat some of the algae and things like that. So uh, they're definitely worth putting in. They also have other uses. You put them in a certain way and you plant a plant that has a hard time in winter, you know, just barely makes it in your, your region. Uh, but you plant that plant so that the sunlight will come in low on the pond in the winter, reflect off the surface of the pond or the ice on the pond, and bounce up onto that plant and actually heat it or warm it. A lot of things you can do with ponds, so that's why we're talking about that, but there you go. Now let's go ahead and get back into something that has more to do with things we were talking about earlier today. Uh, this comes from Gary, and Gary sends this, and he says... Um, EU is fighting France over rodent habitat. You were correct that a country that does not have its own currency is not a sovereign nation. Yeah, the European Union is fighting France over hamsters. Let me read this to you out of BBC Europe. Uh, France warned by EU court over rare hamsters. Top EU legal advisor has warned the French government that it must do more to protect the endangered hamsters living near Strasbourg in eastern France. France could be fined if the European Court of Justice rules it has failed to heed a final warning from the European Commission in 2008. The numbers of great hamsters of Alice, Alice, Alsace, Alsace, whatever, 
are dwindling. The, comment, the commission says <clears throat> only 298 boroughs were found in 2010, down from 1167 in 2001. Farms and roads threaten their habitat. The hamster's last remaining habitat in France is the Lower Rhine uh, department near Strasbourg. Hamster numbers are calculated on the basis of one hamster per borough. Threat of extinction. If agro-environmental measures were put in place in 2008 to protect the great hamster, uh, they are incomplete at this stage, EU Advocate General Julianne Kudakot says on Thursday. Her opinion on the case has been handed to the judges. In most cases, the judges accept the Advocate General's opinion and the court's rulings are binding on the EU member states. So there is no due process. Uh, that's what that says to me. But Gary, who sent the email, is hit it on the head when he says it's because they don't have their own currency. If France was still using the franc and the European Union wanted to find them, they could pretty much thumb their noses, French-like, at the European Union and tell them to go to hell. But since their money comes from the European Union, is part of the European Union, and they're basically treated like France is a state now, Kind of like Florida, as far as the people that run the European Union, the federal government of Europe, uh, sees it. See, that's what happened there. And I won't say too much about that. I just wanted to bring that one up to you. But I do want to say, you know, if you want to save a hamster, I bet there's some grade school children could help you with that. I really do. I bet this hamster, this rat, because that's what they are, they're rats with short tails, could be saved in classrooms all across the European Union, because I don't want them here. I'll feed them to my snakes, but uh, I, you know I'm not—I'm not the kind of guy that wants to see the environment destroyed. But what we have here is a situation where this one person just gives an opinion to a judge, and the judge is just going to enforce her opinion, and and then a nation is forced to pay a fine by a group of other nations. This is why we have to keep our own currency, folks. Let's go ahead and take another one. This one's going to come back to what we were talking about earlier with states printing their own money and why it's not going to work. And uh, as I read this to you, the entire trap should become evident and you start should start to feel really sick about where we're at as a nation and, more importantly, where we're at as a, a supposed republic of sovereign states. When I read this article to you, if you've been paying attention over the past couple of years to what's going on, it's going to be far more horrific than it would be for most people that just see the surface level. Um, the email says, Jack, at the seven deadly cracks. Here's an article in Mainstream News about Congress' discussion of letting states declare bankruptcy. Semi-open discussion is a sign of how bad it really is, and there's a link. And again, this comes from Ted in Missouri. And... Uh, Ted's referencing an article I wrote called Seven Deadly Cracks in an episode of the Survival Podcast I did under the same subject. And I said one of the deadly cracks was with the states that are near bankruptcy. And I want to ask you how a state is going to create its own currency when it's bankrupt. And I want to, uh, let me read the article and let me see if it sinks in. This comes from Mary Williams Walsh from the New York Times, or as Mike Savage calls them, the New York Slimes. Policymakers are working behind the scenes to come up with a way to let states declare bankruptcy and get out from under crushing debts, including the pensions they have promised to retired public workers. Unlike cities, the states are barred from seeking protection in federal bankruptcy court. Any effort to change the status would have to hear, clear high constitutional hurdles because the states are considered 
sovereign. Let me read that again, and then we're going to go on with the article. But I want you right there, you should feel the teeth of the trap going around the legs of the people. Unlike cities, the states are barred from seeking protection in federal bankruptcy court. Any effort to change that status would have to clear high constitutional hurdles because the states are considered sovereign. But proponents say some states are so burdened, the only feasible way out may be bankruptcy, giving Illinois, for example, the opportunity to do what General Motors did with the federal government's aid. Beyond their short-term budget gap, some states have deep structural problems, like insolvent pension funds that are diverting money from essential public services, like education and health care. Won't somebody please think of the children? It's always essential services. They always have to take away your kids' school and health care for the sick old lady. That's always the excuse. Go back to the article. Some members of Congress fear that in just a matter of time before the states seek a bailout, say bankruptcy lawyers who have been consulted by congressional aides. Bankruptcy could permit a state to alter its contractual promises for retirees. In other words, screw them over and not pay them their pension, which are often protected by state constitutions. Who has a constitution? A sovereign has a constitution. And it could provide an alternative to a no-strings bailout. Along with retirees, however, investors in a state's bond could suffer, possibly ending up at the back of the line as unsecured creditors. Remember when that GM did that? GM stock tanked, and the stockholder got nothing, and they relisted it and, and dumped it back on the market at 30 bucks and sold it back, and the stockholders got nothing? And who got less? The bond, all the people that loaned GM money, the bondholders, they got nothing. Who got the money? The federal government used our money to go in and bail them out, and they got the money. And the, the union got the money. And the people that invested in the company got nothing. Well, that's what they're going to do here at the States. Let me go back here. Um, along with retirees, however, investors in state bonds could suffer, possibly ending up at the back of the line of unsecured creditors. All of a sudden, there's a whole new risk factor, said Paul S. Marco, a partner at the firm Vincent and Elkins. Well, that's like a guy I trust, who was the head of Securities and Exchange Commission Office of Municipal Securities during the Clinton administration. I'm just, God, I'm getting warm fuzzy for this guy. For now, the fear that this of destabilization of the municipal bond market with the word state bankruptcy has proponents of con in Congress going about their work on tiptoe. So they're hiding the fact that they're doing it even though it's publicly known. No draft bill yet. No draft bill is in circulation yet. No member of Congress has come forward as a sponsor. Uh, that's, that's a poison pill nobody wants to touch before the next election. Although Senator John Cornyn, a Texas Republican, asked Federal Reserve Chairman Ben S. Bernanke about the possibility in a hearing this month. Whoa. Cornyn, dude, that's going to hurt. House Republicans and senators from both parties have taken an interest in the issue, with nudging from bankruptcy lawyers and a former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, who could be a Republican presidential candidate. It would be difficult to get a bill through Congress, not only because of constitutional questions and the complexity of bankruptcy law, but also because of fears that even talk of such a law could make the state's problem worse. So if we say the states are going to collapse, the people giving them money will stop giving them money, and they'll get in more trouble than they already are, because you know what happens when you take a credit card away from the person that's living on the credit card. They end up on skid row. 
Lawmakers might decide to stop short of a full-blown bankruptcy proposal and establish instead some sort of oversight panel for a distressed state akin to the Municipal Assistance Corporation, which helped New York City during its fiscal crisis in 1975. Still, discussions about something as far-reaching as bankruptcy could give governors and other more leverage in bargaining with unionized. I think they mean unionized. It does say unionized. I had dyslexia for the second there. Unionized public workers. They are rendering a massive assault on us, said Charles M. Loveless, legislative director of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. We're taking this very seriously. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. I will put a link in today's show notes. But I'm going to go back to one line, and I want to know if it's hit you in the face yet. Any effort to change the status would have to clear high constitutional hurdles because the state's considered sovereign. So, what they're saying is if we allow the states to declare bankruptcy, they wouldn't be sovereign. So, New Jersey, California, Hawaii, Illinois, Virginia, we know. We know you can't afford it anymore. We know that you can't make it anymore. We know that you need help from Uncle Sam. And we know the only way we can really do this and protect you from the big scary unions that the federal government put in place in the first place is to give you the option of bankruptcy. Just sign away your sovereignty and we'll do it. The last bit of state sovereignty is under attack with this move. That's what this really is about. And it's been set up right from the beginning, and if you don't see it, you're not paying attention. The states are being per, are permitted to write checks they can't cash for decades. With federal government knowing full well what the end result would have to be. I mean, you'd have to believe that the people up there are so stupid they can't add two and two together and get four. To believe that they didn't understand what was going on. The states were allowed to put themselves into this place with no checks, no concern. Ah, do whatever you want. Don't worry about it. Now, we're going to tell you that your citizens have to wear seatbelts. We're going to tell you you have to have a drunk driving law. We're going to tell you what the numbers have to be. We're going to tell you that our federal government can come in there and screw with your people whenever they want and tell your sheriff's department to stand by and get the hell out of the way. But when it comes to spending money, you can spend all the money you want to. We don't really care. It's fine with by me. And then in the end... Our federal government wants to go to the states and say, let's give you an out. Let's let you declare bankruptcy. And it's going to come at the cost of sovereignty. Exactly what form or how that's going to work, I don't know. But how is a state like Virginia that's going to declare bankruptcy supposed to turn around and create a Virginia dollar when the federal government fails? So I said, if these states that want to have their own currency uh, really want to do this the right way, they need to start converting their dollars into gold and silver. Not because I think gold and silver is the best store of value out there. It's a store of value, not the only one. But because constitutionally they have the authority to do so right now. And I don't see any reason they couldn't put other things into reserve and create state banks. But only the states that have money can do that. Because if a state like Illinois does this, and then they declare bankruptcy, that state bank is an asset, and it's subject to distribution by bankruptcy court to people like, oh, I don't know, the federal employee unions and the state employee unions, that all the people that are actually out there trying to get the state to pay the money they say they can't pay. I mean, i got a better idea. How about the state start cutting some of those essential services that aren't so essential? 
You know, instead of cutting healthcare and instead of cutting education, maybe they could start cutting things like, I don't know, some of those people over there that hold down a desk all day and don't really do anything. All I'm saying is, folks, if you don't feel the news tightening yet, you're not paying attention. Our federal government is drawing up a plan to allow our states to declare bankruptcy. They haven't put it out in formal paperwork yet because we're kind of scared about what the results are going to be. Even John Cornyn is involved with this, and his, 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 uh, his senators go, he's one of the more easy-to-tolerate people out there. And the hurdle is the sovereignty of the state. So if we get the state into enough distress, we can take that hurdle away, can't we? I don't like talking about this. I don't like bringing you guys down. But I do want you to be serious about your preparations, and I want you to be serious about what you're doing in your lives, and I want you to pay attention. Because this is one of those under-the-radar things that most people wouldn't even pick up on. They realize that, hey, you know, Jack's right about these states and might go bankrupt and all the financial calamity that comes with it. But what about the good crisis going to waste thing? Well, there's the crisis. Crisis going to waste as the states have sovereignty and the federal government has been encroaching on that sovereignty almost since the republic was formed. And this is a death nail to the sovereignty of any state that takes bankruptcy as a way out. Let's go ahead and take another email before, uh, before I just get too depressed to go on with this. Unfortunately, I don't have better news today. I guess this isn't as bad, but it sure as hell ain't good. This comes from Jake. Jake says, uh, Chinese nationalized China nationalizes 11 rare earth mines. Let me read the article to you. Uh, this is from Beijing, uh, from the AFP. I guess that's the Associated Free Press. China has bought 11 rare earth mines under, has brought 11 rare earth mines under state control as Beijing consolidates the industry. A move analyst said uh, Thursday could drive up the prices of elements used in MP3 players and hybrid cars. Authorities have targeted mines in the eastern province of. I'm not going to try to say it, something with a J, uh, which is rich in heavy earth, met, rare earths, heavy rare earths, as it seeks to strengthen protection and reasonable development of the sector and the land and resources, the ministry said this week. China, which produces more than 95% of the world's rare earths, has tightened control over the metals by slashing quotas for overseas shipments, hiking export taxes, and cracking down heavily on polluting mines. The moves have raised concerns that China was abusing its market dominance of the 17 elements used to make everything from wind turbines to flat screen televisions. The ministry said Monday that 11 mines covering an area of 2,534 square kilometers or 978 square miles were the first batch of a, quote, state-planned mining zones for rare earths, unquote. Analysts said the move to bring the mines under state control was a key step toward consolidating the fragmented industry in the South and would likely increase the cost of elements. Quote, prices will go up once mining concentration rises and the state strengthens control, unquote, said Sang-Yong Lang, an analyst with uh, Goti Jun Securities in Shanghai. Sang said the government may be tightening heavy rare earths which are, or maybe targeting heavy rare earths which are more expensive than light elements because of their scarcity. Japanese industry said last year China temporarily cut off exports of rare earths in the midst of diplomatic row. Beijing has denied any political motivation for its control of the elements and has instead insisted it is the issue is an environmental one. 
<laughs> the Commerce Ministry said last month it had square slashed rare earth export quotas by 35% for the first six months of this year. So yeah, the Chinese are real concerned about pollution. That's why they're building like a new coal electrical generation plant every day because coal is one of the cleanest energy sources. And my sarcasm, I can't even say it with sarcasm. It's so uh, obscene to even infer that coal is clean energy. Remember, I'm not worried about the carbon. I'm worried about things like the mercury and the sulfur oxidation of the surrounding groundwater and the mountaintop removal and uh, uh, all of the other things that go in the strip mining and all the other things that go with coal mining that actually pollute the planet other than the air that you exhale. So China, in the midst of doing all this nasty coal uh, buildup, says we've got to take care of the pollution these mines are doing by nationalizing them. Of course it's politically motivated. They have control over something the rest of the world needs, and they control most of it. In fact, according to the article here, uh, they control 95% of the world's rare earth elements. And there's other exploration being done to find them in other places like Australia and Iceland and even the southwestern United States. But the reserves there compared to what the Chinese control are minuscule by comparison. And these, of course, will be used to produce all this green energy stuff like windmills, solar panels, and batteries, and what have you that makes solar panels effective. What does this mean? It doesn't mean what people think it means. This is not just about rare earths. okay? It's not just about China exhorting control over them. The fact that the Chinese government nationalizes anything shouldn't be any surprise to anybody. They're a communist nation. They nationalize anything that they think is in the best interest of the state. But what it's really about is taking greater control over a commodity that's in limited uh, capacity, limited production, so they can use it internally. They want to keep as much of this stuff as they need at home before they send it abroad. And we'd say, look at the evil Chinese. But how many of us say, you know, why don't we do that? Why don't we take care of our own first? Isn't that what China's really doing here? It's a bigger sign of what nations do when something's necessary and becomes in limited supply. They jockey for control. So what's next? They're going to jockey for the control of food and water. That's why you need to have a plan for food and water. That's the bigger story here. It's the one the mainstream media won't tell you. It's why even if you heard this on Fox News, I'm giving you a different angle on it. And don't be surprised if somewhere down the road, China does something like, hey, if you guys want some, if you want some promethium so you can make some nuclear batteries, or if you would like some tholium, you know, if you want some tholium so that you can make some portable x-ray machines, If you want some samarium so you can make rare earth magnets and lasers and capture neutrons and do all of these cool things with uh, with new energy sources, well, we got lots of that stuff. We got it all over the south of China. We got 95% of it. What we're going to need is a contract with you to maybe get some of the food that you would be selling to the United States instead of them getting it. Or they might come to us and say, you know, maybe you guys need to export a little bit more to us as far as food goes. Or maybe, I mean, just understand this is a poker chip. It can be used for bartering. It's a setup for a world of limited resources. They're getting ready for this. That's why they've also been, I keep saying it, and no one pays attention, no one gets it. That's why they're buying the hell out of mines and, and farms and, and natural resources all over Africa. 
The Africa of today is the North and South America of 150, 200 years ago. It's the last undiscovered country. It's the last place that hasn't been developed. They're going in developing it in a way that makes them the owners of it. They're colonizing it economically. So they want to control the oil that comes out of Africa, the food that goes into and comes out of Africa. They're locking up long-term agreements with other Asian nations that are exporters of rice to buy up 100% of the exports in the future. They are going ahead and they're doing this stuff now with the rare earth elements. What is it all? Does that mean the Chinese are big scary people who are going to come get us? Like Red Dawn, the, re the remake of Red Dawn? No. It means that our world is finite. And we're reaching a point where enough people in the world want to use the resources where we're seeing the finite nature of it and nations are beginning to jockey for control and not everybody can get everything that they want. And that means we need to be prepared for shortages. Let me uh, go on with one more email for you today. Go to this last one. and is, is mentioned, I, I'm sorry I brought you guys down today, but you guys need to know what's going on out there. I'll do something uplifting tomorrow for you on Herbs. Um, and we'll, we'll do something cool on Thursday too, but, uh, there, there's some just nonsense out there and I'm going to kind of finish with one that, that's not as downer, but it, uh, it just goes to reinforce how, how well we're lied to by the media. Um, this comes from Rob and Rob says, I guess too many people are asking questions about fluoride water. And even the government came out recently and said they're putting too much fluoride in their water. Maybe they need to lower the levels. Well, Where do you hear this article? I mean, you just want to ask Juliet Perrin, are you an idiot when you read the, the dribble that she writes? Here's the headline. This is from the Washington Post, and I guess I'll emulate Michael Savage yet again today and call it the Washington Compost because uh, that's about all it is with, with dribble like this. Headline, filtered and bottled water consumption could increase tooth decay risk. Little did I know that filtering my family's tap water might put our teeth at risk. Two years ago, I was pregnant and reporting on how the federal government was unwilling to regulate the rocket fuel component percolate in drinking water. My husband and I decided to install a reverse osmosis filter in our kitchen tap. Since D.C. tap water has come under fire for high levels of everything from lead to hexabellic chromium, it seemed like a sensible move. But during a recent visit to the dentist, my hygienist remarked she had noticed a rise in tooth decay among children who drank only filtered or bottled water, presumably because they were not drinking fluorided water. And it suddenly occurred to me, neither was my 20-month-old son with his 17 teeth. Listen, honey, that probably means you're not damaging his bones and his brain, you moron. Let me go back to the article. As Americans' consumption of bottled water has risen, it has doubled over the past decade. It is reducing the daily exposure Americans get to the mineral that helps prevent tooth decay. All while there's no scientific proof there, honey, whatsoever that drinking it in your water does a damn thing. And while the researchers have yet to do a comprehensive study of what impact this is having, especially on our children, what's somebody think of the children. Many dentists and pediatricians believe the issue deserves serious examination. Quote, I think it would be good to look at, end quote, said Howard Pollock, a clinical professor of the Department of Preventative and Restorative Dental Sciences at the University of California at San Francisco and a spokesman for the American Dental Association, which, by the way, are the ass clowns that have enforced this on the American people through lobbying in the first place. Prodded by studies showing that fluoride significantly reduced tooth decay, U.S. municipalities began adding it to public drinking water systems in the 40s. 
And our brain power has been in decline ever since. Today, about 65% of Americans get fluoride tap water. But yet, folks, 35% of Americans don't have all their teeth falling out of their mouth, do they? The people that don't have that fluoride, they seem to be doing okay. Um, but let me just get back to the article again. Including 95% of people in Virginia, 99% of people in Maryland, and 100% of people in the district. While a vocal mi minority of Americans remain skeptical, these vocal minorities, that's always code taught for crazy people in major newspapers, the ADA and most other health authorities remain convinced Not, can't prove it. They remain convinced that fluoridation benefits the general population. If you want to read the rest of the article, I will have a link to it for you. But here's the misinformation campaign. Just as Americans begin to wake up and go, hey, I don't want this crap in my water. Get it out. If you won't get it out, I will buy my water or I will filter my water and I will take it out. Washington Compost and this pea brain come up with an article that says your children's 17 teeth may be rotted into infinity because they don't get exposure to fluoride. Hey, let me give you an idea here, honey. It's called toothpaste. And it's called a toothbrush. And fluoride is a topical mineral when it comes to its aid with teeth. Some people will tell me fluoride doesn't help your teeth at all, and I will tell you I disagree. I think that the, the, the mineral fluoride can have a beneficial effect on dental health when used properly. It's not the only way to do it. There's people that have never seen a drop of fluoride in their life, and they have all their teeth because they keep them clean and because they eat the right diet and things like that. But fluoride does help teeth remineralize. But it's topical. Drinking your fluoride is retarded. It's like taking suntan lotion and drinking it and expecting it to keep you from getting a sunburn. Fluoride goes on your teeth, not in your body. We've had the federal government come out and admit that these levels of fluoride they're putting in our water is causing dental fluorosis. And folks, your teeth are bones. That's what your teeth really are. They're bones. Part of your skeleton. And if that fluorosis is on your teeth, it's in your body on your bones. Fluoride is a toxin. Now, I'm not here to end with some kind of insane new world order, end of the earth, concentration camp, nonsense propaganda bullshit with this. I don't think they're doing it to you because they want to kill you or make you stupid. I think they're doing it to you because they're dumb enough to believe their own bullshit and dentists really believe that fluoride in water is helpful in spite of all the little kids that they're seeing with yellow lumps on their teeth. And in spite of the fact that if you read the back of a bottle of a tube of toothpaste, it says if you eat more than it says to use when you brush your teeth, call Poison Control Center immediately. In spite of the fact, once again, the fact that if you go find a box of rat poison, generally you're going to find one ingredient in there, and it's sodium fluoride. Same stuff you're putting on your teeth. Now, I'm not saying to eradicate all fluoride, but I'm going to tell you don't listen to beanheads like this. This is why I have a Berkey system, and this is why I paid the extra money for the extra set of filters to get the fluoride out of my freaking water. And I feel much better about my life without fluoride inside my body. And I will get all the fluoride I need, thank you, from brushing my teeth every morning and every evening before I go to bed. And I suggest you do the same thing, and I suggest that when you read nonsense from beanheads like this idiot, 
in the Washington Compost. Again, this Juliet Elipin or Elipine or whatever the hell her name is, that you realize that this is nothing but pure government-backed propaganda. And if I sound like I've got my full hat on, go research every fact I gave you. You'll find that every single one of it is true, and you'll find that this is pushback because people are upset about what's going in the water. And, of course, she's an environment. She's worried about hexavalent chromium and percolate. The government knows that crap's in there and has allowed it to be in there for 20 years, but she trusts them when they put fluoride in her water. Beanhead. And it's the kind of beanhead that's going to go crazy like Chicken Little if the shit ever really hits the fan. That's why I suggest that you be prepared. Again, I know we went down some dark alleys today. I know this is a long show. I know we went into some things uh, that maybe are not the most uplifting. But, again, once in a while we have to look at what's really going on out there. And some of these things are dark. But I want you to remember something. You have every bit of power you need to make your own decisions, to stay informed, and to keep building a good, solid, sovereign life. Keep working on that. I'll keep giving you all the information and all the knowledge I can possibly share with you to help you on your quest. And with that, I'm going to wrap up for today. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
revolution. 